Hi, I'm CND's Deputy Editor, Lillian Enekwe. For this news podcast, I spoke to John Murphy, the recently retired Director of the PDA, on where the organisation goes from here, the PDA Union's ongoing legal battle with Boots, and how it plans to continue to represent pharmacists. First question, of course, to, to kick off is reflecting back on your time and what you feel your most significant achievements were as PDA head. The most significant achievement is um, giving pharmacists something which they um, probably at the time didn't realise that they needed themselves. And if I can just explain that uh, a bit more. um, I mean, every institution in pharmacy before the PDA came along was more, more or less employee employer ran. There are one or two exceptions for small groups of pharmacists. But in general, um, you know, the um, the large organizations um, had their own uh, support network <coughs> um, through the CCA and obviously the resources that they had. The smaller pharmacies had the NPA to turn to. But for any difficulties, um, the individual pharmacists themselves either had to rely upon what the employer could give them, um, in which case there could be could have been a conflict of interest, uh, or they would have nothing and have to try and um, take on the organisation, their employer, or the regulator, or the or the the criminal justice system, whatever it was, they would have to take it on themselves. <clears throat> so I think, you know, the PDA. Our biggest achievement over that period of time was creating something which allowed the individual pharmacist a um, a, a focal point from which to act on their behalf. Um, interestingly, we're about two years into the PDA, two or three years into the PDA, and <clears throat> I did say to one of the large, uh, one of the superintendents of one of the large multiples that we want to be one of the big four in pharmacy and by that you know we meant the the cca the mpa the uh and the um the rps which was the regulator and the membership body at that time and he looked quizzically at me and said but john you already are we've moved from a standing start <clears throat> with some people who already had insurance indemnity policies with the PIA to an organisation that now has 26,000 pharmacists. We we were the new kids on the block. Mm-hmm. We were um, we were affecting the status quo, and as a consequence, uh, a lot of the organisations, and particularly the commercial organisations didn't really want us involved Mm -hmm. and they took it upon themselves to put a lot of measures in place to try and um, obstruct our progress which actually didn't work. So I think the other thing I'd be proud of really is you know our tenaciousness in making sure that the organization worked and the organization did what it set out to do. And as I say, it's in a very, very good position now. Mm. And uh, since we started the organisation, it's been growing mm. year on year on year. 
and we anticipate that that will continue as well. You talked about how you wanted the PDA to be perceived as one of the big four. Now that you've stepped away from it, what do you think the perception is of the PDA among the profession, particularly in the community pharmacy sector? Well, I don't think that they can ignore us. They, a lot of them would probably give us some credit for being true to what we believe in, for being true to what we do for our, organ- our, our, our you know, one of our, our, our raison d'etre is to uh, defend the reputation and protect our members. Um, and uh, as, as one or two people have said to me, look, the PDA isn't going to go away. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's really quite interesting because we've had a lot of conversations with some of the organisations <clears throat> and they will say to us, I don't think we're a million miles away about what it is we want for pharmacy, but I think there might be a difference on a big difference in, part, in, in places about how we both want to achieve it. In these days of... Um, employment status, etc., union status, uh, and the organisation, which, remember, the PDA was also set up as an organisation. <clears throat> that was to, its main, one of its main uh, objectives was to improve the work in a lot of pharmacists so that patients would be safe. Mm-hmm. There is an, an acceptance that an organisation like ours um, can exist and ought to be given the credit and the respect that it deserves. Mm. I think we are at loggerheads at the way um, some of the particularly larger commercial organisations would see how they um, create profit and um, um, control the workforce to the extent that they are dampening down pharmacists' professional autonomy. but from our point of view, I think, you know, um, the perception from them is that we, um, we, we, we probably want the same thing, but we want to go about it in different ways. Just focusing on the union function of the PDA, you've talked <coughs> about your, um, your work with some of the larger organisations in the community pharmacy sector in standing up for pharmacists' working rights in order that patients are safer. Looking back, where do you think your biggest successes have have been in that area, particularly with some of the larger organisations that you've dealt with? And where perhaps do you think the PDA has come up short and you would like to see in future maybe your predecessors uh, be more, more successful or make greater inroads? From a union perspective, um, all organisations have um, set themselves up so as they do not or will not allow the PDA to have to try and attain collective representation. I think that's probably because um, some of them have got other union um uh, arrangements to fall back on and um, that would be in the supermarket sector in particular where they may have a, um, a, a long history 
with dealing with other unions and they would they don't want another union getting involved and and I think particularly you know they don't necessarily want a union getting involved that um, uh, is, 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 is focusing on, on pharmacists and pharmacy um, in general. <clears throat> and, um, you know, part of that is because they just don't want, um, they don't want the hassle of another union. And part of it, I do genuinely believe that they don't want to be, they would not, rather not be exposed by the type of things and the type of incidents and the type of employment versus professional scenarios that we get involved in. I, I think that um, the celebrated case with Boots is a case in question <coughs> where uh, Boots do not want an, an organisation uh, involved with it that can uh, can um, negotiate on behalf of all of the pharmacists in the organisation. Um, there, there's a there's a reluctance for organisations to get involved with pharmacists and um, on a union basis. <clears throat> now they can't stop us, of course, representing the individual rights of our pharmacists, and that doesn't stop us. That's why we still, you know, we've always um, about around about 50 to 60 percent of our incidents in the PDA ever since we started have been involved um, with employment or self-employment issues. So, you know, the other 40 percent would be regulatory, clinical, negligence, mm -hmm. uh, professional issues. Uh, and um, and criminal, so they 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 can't they can't stop us doing that. What they um, what they do not seem to want us to do <clears throat> is to represent uh, collectively on terms, conditions, and working environments. And we've been very vocal about working environment mm. because we don't think the working environment is appropriate. Um, and we do not think that the way it's moving is making it any safer for patients or a better place for pharmacists to work. And hence, you know, our heavy involvement over the last uh, uh, 10 to 15 years on working environments, which, <clears throat> as I say, we don't think are appropriate. If there's a reluctance to allow the PDA and other organisations to take part in the collective representation work that they need to do. Mm. Where do you see the PDA, for example, going from here? Is that anything, did you see any signs that that situation well, was well, changing? Well, we, 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 we are obviously awake with bated breath, as I think the rest of the industry will as well, to decide, to, to, to uh, decipher what will happen. Uh, as a consequence of the High Court appeal about the, uh, on the judicial review, uh, based on the fact that we had a, a very, very large, a better than 50% proportion of pharmacists in membership, our membership, who worked for Boots. Uh, Boots denied us representation when we sought it 
on the basis that they already had an agreement in place with the Boots Pharmacist Association. Uh, unfortunately, you know, union law does allow, um, or should I say, does it? Yeah, does allow an organisation, a large organisation, to refuse uh, another union to become involved in that organisation for that representative group if there is a an agreement in place um, which, which states that the other union would uh, they could enter into, into into that arrangement with that union with that small with that other union. Now <clears throat> the fact was that the fact is that it doesn't really matter how many members the other union has in it versus the union that's applying for recognition. If it has an agreement in place with certain criteria, then the law allows that union to the smaller of the two unions to be representative. But the nub of the fact was that when we um, when we applied uh, a formal agreement under the trade union law did not actually exist as we would have understood it. But whilst we were negotiating or trying to have dialogue with Boots senior management on recognition, they I could only say the word surreptitiously put in agree put in this formal agreement with the Boots Pharmacist Association. They say that they were only formalising the arrangement that already existed. We say um, that it was uh, it was a um, surreptitious act, and an act which um, which we we felt um, went against the spirit of the law. But but here's the nub, you see, because that agreement that they put in actually prevented that union, the BPA, and therefore any union negotiating on terms and conditions and pay. That's what made it so special, not the fact that some of the criteria met, but also based upon the fact that it denied the rights, the fundamental rights of any individual to have a, collect, a union of its choice collectively bargaining on its terms and conditions and pay. So when we took that to the Central Arbitration Committee, they believed that what Boots had done was probably uh, not compatible with human rights uh, legislation. And there had been a case in Europe at the time uh, from a similar situation, which where the European Court of Justice deemed that um, it is a fundamental right, regardless of what the um, regardless of what the, the the law says in the individual country, that that law can't really breach the individual right of, um, of of somebody who 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 could be expected to have um, a negotiating arrangement on uh, pay, holidays, and terms and conditions. <clears throat> so. Boots went to the judicial review, and um, the judicial review, the the hearing of the judicial review, 
and the interim judgment uh, showed that the judge agreed with us. <clears throat> Unfortunately, at that point in time, because the government hadn't been involved in any of this, uh, they uh, made an application to the court to say that they ought to be involved in a judicial review hearing. Uh, and as a consequence of, I wouldn't say intervention, but in terms of the uh, the legal machine of the government, once it got involved in the presentation of the law and the aspects of the law, in the final decision, the judge changed his mind and reverted and said that there already is a mechanism within the current law um, which would allow individuals of a union to have their union derecognized. Now, our point was that you can't... Um, it means that people who are, in, who are members of the union who's got the agreement are asking for derecognition. <clears throat> and you are saying, therefore, that the union doesn't have any rights as an entity, uh, as opposed to only individuals. So the judge decided that there was a mechanism, and therefore it didn't breach anybody's human rights under the British law. Mm. Uh, the, the, the point of that judicial... What the judge did say, he did say, if you would like to make an application <clears throat> that this law is incompatible with European law, then he would hear it. And I suppose it was at that point in time where the judge... Um, seemed to do uh, 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 change his mind on the situation and the government um, and the government and boots won the day <clears throat> we therefore took that again to the appeal court so we've been to the uh, the high court of appeal uh, where that was heard by three judges and we're now awaiting the response from them, their decision, which, you know, will be out within the next couple of months, I guess. That was in November. But I think the point in this is that Boots have obviously spent an awful lot of money, an awful lot of time, and an awful lot of effort to make sure that the PDA doesn't have any recognition within their organisation, any formal collective bargaining recognition. <coughs> so, you know, the... the um, as, as an organisation, as, as the only, um, I guess, cross-sector uh, union in um, in pharmacy, I think everybody is probably waiting with bated breath. Um, this could could probably, if not change employment law, it would certainly get people interpreting it slightly differently under the trade union law. So, so that. That's where we're up to. If your question is, what should we be doing next? Well, I think we should be um, finding mechanisms that are available to us to get as much representation in as many uh, employer, employer organisations for our members as possible. <clears throat> so in that particular situation, our view is that whether they knew it or not, what that organisation, the BPA, did actually do, and I suspect that they didn't realise what they were doing at the time, but they were denying every pharmacist in Boots the right 
to negotiate on their terms and conditions. Coverage um, <coughs> last year about the working, envi- yeah. the working environment in Boots, the pressures that pharmacists are placed under, which manifests itself in ways such as pressure to complete inappropriate medicines use reviews. What was your perspective of that? What, how did you how did you see that um, that kind of data gathering exercise? What was the decision in terms of going public with it to the Guardian? And also, do you think that the headlines it created has advanced the community sec- the community pharmacy sector? Do you think it's taken the the sector forward? Well, <clears throat> reading the other side of that question, I think you're saying has has it, has it damaged? the community sector that's the alternative perspective yeah 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 yeah. well don't shoot the messenger Mm -hmm. you know um remember we've been on this work-based pressure and uh quashing the autonomy of pharmacists i mean almost since we started we started the organization with a questionnaire about the environment the type of environment that people were working on we, we asked them about their breaks, how many breaks. We asked them about whether they felt it was safe in the pharmacy that they were working. You know, we, we got something like 2,500 responses from that. <clears throat> and we asked them what the, you know, what the, if, now, you know, we're talking about 15 years ago that we've been on this case. And we've not, not really stopped. <clears throat> um, now, as far as the boot situation is concerned, this all started because a financial journalist was uh, looking into the way Boots was acquired. And he suddenly hit on a, on a, on a vein of gold of the, of, through the NHS. Um, we certainly, again, we were doing our work, actually. We started to do all of this work. And we did that as a consequence of the task force that we set up for, for locums. We were looking at the way pharmacists were being pressurised, the way they were being, um, the autonomy was being stripped away from them, and then in the way, the, the environment that they were working in, uh, the commercial imperatives that were being forced upon them were actually affecting uh, the end user and the safety of the patient. So when the press picked up, and the Guardian picked up, that we were doing this work, it was no surprise to us, absolutely no surprise whatsoever. They did nothing about it, you know. Uh, we were telling the NHS they did nothing about it. Um, and you go back through all our insights, our magazines, and you will see that there's article after article. So I have to say, as sad as it was, um, the exposure... Uh, I believe has got to be a good thing for pharmacy. Services have been commoditized. You know, pharmacists were being targeted on the number of MURs that they could do. They were getting bullied. They were getting phoned up three, four, five times a day from their area manager. Nobody was worried about how many, um, you know, how many prescriptions they were doing, walking prescriptions. They were just getting battered and battered to do more MURs. It was not about what was best for patients, this. It was about what was best for the bottom line. Now, is a service where you can review medicines with a patient, is that a good thing for pharmacists to do? Of course it is. But the minute that you commoditize it, 
then the minute it starts to become just a normal commodity, we, you know, we don't apologise for what happened with the Guardian article, but I'll tell you what's the most disappointing for us, and this is something that I think seriously needs to be looked at in the future, mm-hmm. is the effectiveness of the regulator when dealing with issues like this. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that the Guardian, if you remember, um, on the first, the journalist told us that the editor had received more letters than any other story he could remember, uh, which he therefore, on the following day, gave a full two pages to the article and the letters that were coming back from the article. Mm-hmm. And also, they sought a response from the regulator, and the regulator said that they were going to do something about it, or they were going to investigate it. Well, the limit of the investigation, I'm afraid, was a one-day seminar. And I'm sorry, but we've all been to those seminars before. Um, the manicured, and basically the questions that are asked just make sure that you know, don't come up with the answers that anybody really wants them to come up with. So, as far as the regulator is concerned, I'm afraid, uh, you know, it's on notice that it's got to work very, very hard and actually start to hold some of the large organisations, any organisation, not just the large ones, any organisation accountable for the type of conditions and the pressures that they put on pharmacists, which is affecting patient safety. We're working from a background here that um, certainly in all the years I've been with the PDA, that the number of deaths that I heard of in a community pharmacy setting that happened as a consequence of medication errors was unprecedented. And that was in the, in the last year. And we also are aware, sadly, there had been suicides um, amongst pharmacists last year, which uh, all the indications would say that was a consequence um, of uh, them not being able to cope. <clears throat> That's certainly unhappy to hear, and I suppose it begs the question, now that you are stepping away from the PDA, do you still have hope for the future in terms of the issues that you've highlighted the state of the, the profession and the community sector, do you still feel hopeful that there's a positive future in store? The NHS have got to do something. Uh, it can't carry on the way it is. Um, the um, pharmacists have got to be used differently. Now, don't get me wrong, pharmacists still, it's integrally need to be involved in this supply process, right? Um, and and the introduction of summary care records mm-hmm. uh, is an area, you know, where pharmacists could provide a uh, a support and uh, obviously use all the skills that they've got <clears throat> for particularly for things like clinical checks of prescriptions. So I'm not saying that they should be involved in the actual dispensing, but they should be involved integrally in the process. Unfortunately, 
I believe the government is doing its best to dumb down the profession in terms of, I believe that there is our moves afoot again to try and reintroduce remote supervision. It's not what is safe for patients. It's not what they want. The government is forcefully trying to up the, as is the regulator, I have to say, um, forcefully trying to um, increase uh, the role and the volume about what technicians can do. But our research shows that in community pharmacy, you know, we're a million miles away from that. We could, we need, I mean, if you look at our roadmap, it, it, it documented, it, it, it's all in there. But a career structure with competence, competence is agreed for each layer, the outputs for the patients and the training and development to deliver that. Then you can decide what it is you want the technicians to do to support that. And we're doing it, we're, the government and the GPAT are doing it the other way around. I see. Well, John Murphy, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for talking to C&D today.